I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Woman podcast. I'm Leanne Levers, and I'm one of the co-founders of Dope Black Woman. And today, I'm very excited to have Carlish Chapman here with me. We are going to be discussing a topic that means a lot to me and to her and to many of the women in our community. Um, we're going to be discussing the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade. Black women and maternal health is a major issue in both the US and the UK. We know that Black women are three to five times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues. And it's estimated that with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, that there will be a 12% increase in deaths of Black women within the first year and 33% increase to follow um, in the subsequent years. So I'm really interested to speak with Carlis to hear about what's happening on the ground following the overturning of Roe versus Wade and, you know, uh, some of the global implications, because I think what affects our sisters in the U.S. will ultimately affect us here and for the rest of the world. So thank you, Carlis, for joining me so much. I'm really excited to speak with you about this issue. I'm excited to be here and and I love talking to a global audience about, um, you know, how what happens in the U.S. really impacts the rest of the world. So could you start by just telling me a little bit about yourself? Um, And one of the questions that we always ask our guests is what makes you a dope black woman? So introduce yourself and tell us what makes you a dope black woman. Oh, wow. I don't know. you know, I don't know what makes me dope, but I can definitely tell you about myself. Um, So I'm a native of Houston, Texas, um, fourth generation Texan for sure, possibly longer. Um, I went to Duke University for undergrad, University of Texas Law School, and I practiced law for 11 years in Houston before I became a law professor. Um, But in addition to practicing law, you know, since I was in college, I've been involved with reproductive justice through volunteer work, served on the board of Planned Parenthood, and then, um, you know, Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast, the Houston affiliate. And, you know, as a professor, I'm actually a business law professor. I teach corporations, business organizations, mergers and acquisitions, commercial (laughs) law, all of those things. Um, And and what has brought me to the forefront for reproductive justice is as I was doing my work on corporate personhood, Um, I started to realize that you could make the comparison to fetal personhood, especially, I mean, particularly under the U.S. Constitution and the way that it's written. Um, And so I'm probably, 
you know, best known for a tweet that went viral viral in 2019, you know, where I kind of posed some if a fetus is a person questions and wrote some follow-up articles. And, you know, folks are often shocked to learn, you know, that all of those anecdotes anecdotes and all those comparison I make are, um, you know, comparing them to the stuff I do with corporations. Um, And then as far as corporations are concerned, I also have this children's book called Companies Are People Too, um, to try to help um, people understand, you know, just what corporate personhood is. And, you know, what I find most fascinating about corporate personhood actually relates to the Dobbs discussion because throughout the world, corporations have been treated like people longer than indigenous people, longer than black people, Mm. even say longer than poor people, you know, corporations originate with the Roman empire, um, and the, and the way they form their city states and in those very city states that were deemed as, you know, persons, there were enslaved people, right? So we've always had this dichotomy where the business tool of the elite has superior status to the human beings who live in those in those city states or who are governed um, and operate and function with those corporations. Wow, wow, that's so interesting. I've never, I mean, I've never heard the comparison being made. And so, talk to us about the comparison of corporations being treated like humans and how that led to kind of your enlightenment about or your perspective on the Roe versus Wade situation? Well, what I saw happening um, is, you know, fetuses are the t- are, are, are essentially the tools of white men. Um, you know, fetuses are this tool that white men are using to control women's bodies. Mm. Just as corporations are a tool used by white men primarily to control the economy and commerce. And so what I saw happening in the US is, you know, a state will pass a fetal personhood statute at the same time that they cut education or a state will cut a fetal personhood statute, but won't expand Medicaid, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, you see this, you see it happening again. You see where, you know, these are this tool that they're gonna use to control people. Um, and they really don't think are invested in actually giving fetuses anything. It's just a tool that they can use to control. Um, and, and that's what the tweet is about. It's like, okay, if y'all are going to make fetuses persons, um, let's stop deporting people who are pregnant because they're carrying a U.S. citizen. Let's yeah. stop, you know, let's start child support then. Like, let's let people get health insurance. Let people claim them on their federal income taxes. If you really, really, truly are concerned about fetuses and life, why aren't all of these things in addition to what you're doing? Or, you know, the truth is, is it really just about controlling women? I think there's just an assumption that abortion is now illegal everywhere, right? And it's not exactly how it works um, in the US. So talk to us a little bit about from a legal standpoint, exactly what the overturning means. At abortion, we're totally banned. And it would be far easier if we had a clear definition of what abortion is, because activists could pick up where they left off, doctors would know what they're allowed to treat, and even though it would be drastic, we would know what's happening. But instead, in the United States, we have 50 different states, and what the Dobbs decision says is we're turning abortion back over to the states 
we're not going to make a federal declaration of what it means. And so what we've seen happening is this patchwork of abortion rights where, you know, some states are pro-choice states for now and you have access to abortion, but maybe those states have things that we call trigger laws that were on the books from like the 1800s banning abortion. And all of a sudden a state that you thought was a safe haven isn't. Um, We have doctors not prescribing medication that might induce abortion because they aren't sure whether they have the right to or not. So, you know, there are these drugs like methotrexate, Mm -hmm. um, which is a mild form of chemo that's used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. Well, doctors aren't giving it to women because it can induce an abortion, right? And so whether you're pregnant or not, doctors are afraid to prescribe it until they get further notice. Um, We've got um, women having miscarriages because the treatment for a miscarriage is exactly the same as the treatment for an abortion. A miscarriage is a spontaneous abortion. So we have women going septic as doctors try to figure out if they can treat their miscarriage. There was a story last week about a woman who was bleeding for 10 days. while having a miscarriage because the doctors were afraid to end her miscarriage. So, you know, I almost feel like we're in a worst case scenario where there is no clear definition of what doctors can do in the United States. And I've even heard anecdotally, like on social media, you know, in states like New York and Virginia, where abortion is legal, where doctors are afraid to prescribe certain, certain prescriptions because it could induce an abortion. And, you know, they don't know where the woman's coming from, who's getting this prescription or why she's asking. And so, you know, it's, it's creating this insane hostile scenario where women are not getting basic healthcare and given the disparities in healthcare for black women internationally, you know, it's already having a greater impact. Like I think about the numbers of black women that have lupus, the numbers of black women that have rheumatoid arthritis, the numbers of black women who are diabetic and have, you know, other conditions that could be treated by medications that could could induce an abortion who are now not receiving their prescriptions because doctors are afraid to prescribe it. There are so many other things that, whether you're talking about a medical abortion or a surgical abortion, that denying women access to these services are actually, you know, killing them. But what's been the conversations that you've been having with other Black women in your spaces? You know, what's interesting about Texas is, you know, Texas is one of the states that was the basis of the Dobbs opinion. They they added the Texas statute to um, the Mississippi, you know, Mississippi case. And so t- abortion has been pretty much illegal in Texas since September 1st of last year. Mm-hmm. And I think that got lost in the discussion. Texas had a bill called Senate Bill 8, SB 8, that provided a private right of action, which meant that anybody off the street could sue your cab driver, your doctor, you know, anyone who facilitated an abortion could be sued in court by anyone else. Essentially, it was a bounty hunter statute. That's been on the books since September 1st of 2021. So I like to remind, and it, it was, and it was a six week ban. Um, Texas is attempting, attempting to implement a total ban, which has been stayed in the courts over and over again. Greg Abbott is suing the federal government for Joe Biden issuing an executive order saying abortions have to be performed in emergency, but you know, abortion clinics in Texas 
have been operating bare bones or functionally closed since September 1st. And the reason I think that's important to emphasize is, especially when it comes to black women, is that Roe has not been a reality for black women in vast portions of the United States for years, right? Um, you know, there was this false sense of security with Roe still being there, but between trap laws, which are targeted restrictions of abortion, abortion providers, um, with the fact that you couldn't get public assistance and federal funds to help fund an abortion, you know, the fact that the 24-hour the waiting periods and the need for more than one ultrasound, which means that if a woman is poor, she's got to take like two days off work instead of one. Right. All of those things have made abortion care inaccessible to Black women for years, possibly decades. Um, and so I think the numbers are skewed when we look at abortion numbers in the United States. Um, you know, I think you know, who's to say that a private doctor is reporting out everyone that has an abortion? We mostly have, you know, the numbers we get from public entities. We get the numbers we have from organizations like Planned Parenthood. Uh, but the simple reality is we haven't been able to access abortion care um, at, at, a, at a reasonable level for a while, um, possibly if ever, when you think about the consequences of things like the Hyde Amendment that keep Medicare and Medicaid from paying for an abortion. So, you know, I think in Texas, We've had the worst case scenario for months. So I kind of feel like everyone else is just getting to feel what it feels like to be in Texas and to be working in Texas. Um, you know, I've kind of been screaming from the rafters. Abortion is essentially illegal in Texas since September 1st. Where is everybody? What are you doing? Um, and I think people got a false sense of security and kind of thought, oh, that Texas bill, there's no way that's going to be the law yeah. of the land everywhere. And it just, it, it is what it's become. So you know, there are abortion funds that are in place that are helping women get out of the state. Um, there are people who are working underground to get medication mailed in for the medical abortion. Um, and, and so there, there are grassroots efforts that are happening to get women access that have been in place since September in Texas. But surely those services are inundated incredibly, right? Because as we've discussed, as we've established, or as most advocates have established, banning abortions doesn't actually reduce abortions. And in fact, places that legalize abortion are more likely to have less abortions than countries like the US where we're banning abortions rapidly. So how are people surviving or how are those grassroots organizations surviving when they're they're I'm assuming they're inundated with people that are coming from other states. Um, you know, they're trying to provide as much support, as you said, with kind of bare bone resources. You know, I don't know. Right. Like, I think, you know, they're doing the best they can. There are people working around the clock. Um, donations are stepping up. But I think, you know, Google your favorite Google abortion funds, um, Google and and you know, donate if you have the resources to donate. Um, if you have the time to volunteer and you're in the U.S., look these organizations up and volunteer. Um, I, you know, I think everyone is fighting for survival at this point. Yeah. You know, I've been advocating for legalization of abortion in Jamaica for a long time. And even within the U.K., there is a sentiment, and I can only speak about Black women because that's kind of my purview, who feel like the state should actually have a say and they take a very 
I suppose, religious standpoint to saying that black women should not be or women should not be engaging in abortions as if it's some kind of birth control that, you know, under any circumstances, you know, one of the most heated conversations I had around abortion was with a woman from a Christian uh, organization, a faith-based organization, who basically told me that under no circumstances should you ever abort a child, whether you know that child is going to be born, um, you know, as a stillbirth, no circumstances because of this religious aspect. And how do you, how do you respond to black, especially other black women who have that kind of conservative perspective in the work that you're doing? You know, I say two things. One, when has letting the government make decisions for black people ever been a positive for us? Mm. When, like, tell me a time when letting a government, a monarchy, a corporation, when is letting anybody ever have the ability to make decisions for us been a net positive for black people or a positive at all anywhere in the globe? Right. So, you know, if I have a choice between you making a decision about your own body and trusting the government to make a decision about your black body, I'm always going to choose to let you make a decision about your black body because, you know, we have slavery, we have forced breeding, we have all of these things. We know what happens when we start to acquiesce to government power as black people. The other thing that I say is my religion is not your religion. Mm hmm. Your religion is not a third person's religion. And I don't know of any faith in which we're supposed to impose our religion on someone else. And so what I say to those people, if you don't want to have an abortion, don't have one. Like you have a sincerely held religious belief. You should absolutely never have an abortion. But whether I ever have an abortion is between me and my faith and my God. And your faith doesn't control my faith. Um, there are various religions that think you should always have an abortion if it's at the risk of the mother or, you know, th there are people, I mean, the Bible itself talks about life beginning when you take your first breath, a fetus is not breathing on its own. Right. So people interpret the Bible in different ways. We're all entitled to how we inter interpret the Bible Bible or how we interpret the Quran or how we interpret the Torah or how we interpret whatever it is that we're reading, right. How we convene with our ancestors or do whatever it is that we do with our individual religions, but there is no place for states to mandate one religion on everyone. And there is certainly never a situation when I want any form of government, any form of entity, or any other human being deciding what I do with my body, because I know how that ends for us, right? Like we know what happens. A hundred percent. And I think it's interesting because, again, I go back to my example in Jamaica, you know, one of the things that we drummed um, home as advocates was that this legal or this ban, the lack of legalization of abortion disproportionately affects in Jamaica because, you know, it's a black majority country, poorer and younger women. Right. Which is the same in the U.S. It's the same everywhere. Um, and that includes kind of any marginalized group. 
what are the global implications? Because now for women in the Caribbean who are wealthy enough to fly to Florida or to fly to another state to get an abortion may not be able to do that anymore. So I'm really interested to hear about kind of what you perceive the global implications to be like both practically and then from a legislative standpoint as well because we see in south america kind of incremental strides being made to decriminalizing abortion as well and and i would hate to see those kind of regress or or you know haven't be impacted negatively by what's happening in the states you know we we've already had presidents we already had republican presidents like trump and bush limit international funds for women's health care if those international organizations are providing abortion. And we have this cycle in the U.S. where a Republican president ends those funds, a Democratic president puts them back in place, and it's this vicious cycle over and over again. Um, if, if the Republicans take control of Congress in November, which is very, very possible, and they are able to pass a federal abortion ban, I would think that would be a permanent end to international funds for abortion. But the other big problem is that, you know, the U.S. has such overwhelming influence on the rest of the world, you know, and it's like you said with South America and other countries that are making strides, you know, I worry that those countries are going to see the U.S. example and go backwards. Um, I was just in Italy um, a couple weeks ago, and all of them were surprised um, that, you know, that, that Roe had fallen and all that, because they're like, we have the Pope here, you know, this is a largely Catholic country. And if you need an abortion, the government pays for it. And it's no questions asked, like it's not on demand, you know, but it's essentially, if there's a request up to a certain point, if there's a medical need ever, you can have an abortion and it's not a big deal. And so, you know, it's, it's insane to me that Italy, which is a Catholic country with the Vatican thinks we're insane, right? They, they can't believe that we're supposed to be a developed country and, and that we have essentially eliminated a form of healthcare. Um, but the problem is, you know, the U S signals to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So while we might have the rest of Europe saying, look at those crazy Americans, that doesn't mean we don't have other countries saying, well, look, the United States, they're religious too, and they just did it. And so we're going to do the same. So the two things are loss of international funds. If the U.S. stops giving funding to NGOs and other healthcare organizations internationally because they are concerned about abortions. Um, and then what, what does our example show? I just wanted to also follow up beyond the global implications. I wanted to also talk about, you know, Clarence Thomas, it's been very, a very popular statement from Clarence Thomas has been floating around saying, well, the next step is to address LGBTQ plus rights. The next step is to address, um, contraception, the next, and do you think that, I mean, is that a reality? Is that from a legislative standpoint, from a legal standpoint, is that feasible that those rights will then by extension, has Roe versus Wade set a precedent for those rights to be removed as well? Absolutely. Um, You know, all of those rights are built on the foundation of Roe. And so anyone who thinks that they're not coming for birth control and they're not coming for reproductive rights, I mean, coming for LGBTQ rights is delusional right? Like he said it deliberately. And the fact that Alito says, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. You know, people have to remember that when Alito 
and all of the other Republican justices sat at their confirmation hearings. They vowed they would uphold precedent and they would not overturn Roe. So I think Thomas is just saying the quiet part out loud. He's saying it sooner than they want him to say it. We've already seen some forms of birth control go away. We've seen in some states them pulling plan B off the shelf. Anyone with common sense knows plan B does not induce an abortion, right? right? But people are pulling it off the shelf because they don't understand the difference between birth control and abortion. Um, we're, we're already seeing it happen and we don't even have a ban on abortion yet. I mean, on birth control yet. Um, and I think what people forget is that getting access to birth control in the United States was incremental. You know, it started with, oh, well, married couples should have access to it. And like, we shouldn't invade, you know, the privacy of married couples and how they plan. And then we evolve to everyone getting access to birth control. It wasn't an automatic and it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we'd have access to birth birth control. You know, when I was in law school in 2003, that's when we had the Lawrence v. Texas decision that decriminalized homosexual sex. Like that is not an old opinion. That is 2003. Lawrence v. You know, Lawrence v. Texas was cops bursting into someone's bedroom and arresting them for what they were doing in their bedroom. That's what that case was about. And that happened in our lifetime. That happened very recently. So, you know, these rights are not well established in the United States. These freedoms are not well established and they can be, they can turn on a dime and be reversed. We've seen the Supreme Court do it with Roe and they're all built on the foundation of the right of privacy. And they, so they can go by the wayside too. Wow. Wow. I did not know that that happened in our lifetime, 2003. That is crazy to think about that. That was, you know, less than uh, two decades ago. Yep. It's insane. So all this being said, it feels a little bit like I can understand how advocates, how women, how black women are feeling deflated and feeling a little bit hopeless. I mean, is there any, what do we do? What is, what is the response that we should be having? All right. So I think, you know, the first thing we have to do is don't completely give up hope. There are ways we can fight incrementally. Um, It's not clear that you can completely eliminate mail order abortion since that uses the federal system. You can, or that, you know, accessing abortion prescriptions by mail. Um, It you know, give, give financial support to abortion funds. If you can, um, there are efforts to fight all of these statutes incrementally that are rolling out. And so even if you can't completely reverse the ban on abortion, you know, maybe you can get in some rape and incest exceptions. Maybe you can find, you know, people are are fighting to find other ways to, to find some loopholes and find some ways where this, where the States are going too far. Um, And then I think it's not understated or it can't be stated too much that a very important thing to do is to vote, register to vote, find a way to fight and vote because we have to vote these people out of office. And, you know, what I like to say and remind people is it might not mean pulling a straight democratic ticket. It may not be one party or the other. We have to look at people's histories and voting records on women's rights and reproductive rights 
And there may be some Democrats that need to be primaried because of their stances. And we've got to band together and get rid of anyone who does not believe in reproductive justice and reproductive rights. Um, I personally think we should be expanding the size of the Supreme Court um, to pack the court and try to prevent a further erosion of rights. I know a lot of people think that's too radical of a position. Um, I, you know, I think we should question in the United States what the Senate is and what the Senate is about um, and what it was created for. You know, the Senate was created as a tool to make sure that slave owning states had power. Um, and I think we should look at the origins of that and look at what the consequences are now that we have a state like Wyoming or a state like Montana, you know, that's the size of, you know, one major city in another state or smaller, but still has two senators in Congress and still has, you know, two senators who can, you know, essentially decide the lives or deaths of a woman and put, or put people on the courts. Um, so I think, you know, it's important to, to take a 360 approach and look at all the ways we failed up until now and be making every effort to use those vehicles to work. I have a good friend who's thinking of becoming a midwife um, because midwives were known for having methods um, for ending pregnancies. Um, before men took over gynecology, um, essentially as an effort to control women more, you know, it was just common knowledge that midwives had methods that no one ever talked about. Um, and I think maybe we got to return to the old school ways. You know, maybe we need more women in the profession, helping women through pregnancy, helping women through childbirth. And I think that can also address the black woman mortality rate. Um, I have a lot of friends who during their pregnancies worked with a midwife um, you know, like if they had one baby, they went with a traditional doctor, second baby, they went with a midwife and, you know, they say the experience is night and day. So I think we've got to start questioning the way medicine works as well. So hearing actually the history, which I didn't know that midwives, you know, back in the day used to have these, uh, these approaches or these, these ways that we didn't actually know about is quite interesting because the statistic is, is that, um, I think if we were in to increase the amount of midwives by 25%, we would save, I think, approximately 1.37 million lives a year because of the fact that midwives are in a unique position to avert, you know, maternal deaths, to avert newborn deaths, to avert stillborns. Wow. So, yeah. So it's, um, it's a really interesting thing that you've brought up or brought to our attention that actually a less medicalized approach to birthing and to just kind of understanding or making choices about your body can actually, as you said, help this, this maternal health issue that we're seeing. Yeah. And you know, it's when you look at the history of modern gynecology, you know, there's, you know, this man who they call the father of gynecology um, came up with a lot of, of surgical procedures by experimenting on enslaved black women with no anesthesia, right? Performing hysterectories on black women with no anesthesia, performing gynecological surgeries on black women with no anesthesia. And so the history of, you know, modern medicine and modern gynecology, it, you know, one, it's fraught with violence against black women, um, but it also is fraught with this, this, this control of women's bodies, this idea that you know, these women are over here and why are we letting women be in charge of childbirth? And, 
you know, did this woman really have a miscarriage? What's going on? And it's men trying to, you know, decide, wait a minute, doctors should be doing this. You know, I've, I've even spoken to a midwife before who said the way that women labor laying in bed um, and, you know, hooked up to all these tubes and not allowed to walk and walk around and all of that, like, you know, it's the worst way to give birth and the way that they were using forceps and the way that they, you know, cut women and all the things that are happening in childbirth. Um, you know, it's, it's not the way things were always done. You know, it's men deciding this is the better way. This is the safer way. Um, and you know, who's to say that it's right. I have a lot of friends that have had home births, water births, you know, births with midwives. And most of them, you know, have had more than one child and said the first time they did it hundred percent, the modern medicine way. And subsequently they've done it the old fashioned way and the old fashioned way was a much more pleasant birthing experience. That's good to know. I will pay attention to that when I am pregnant. And interestingly enough, in a few weeks, I will be interviewing a doula and a midwife to discuss kind of non-medicalized birth. So this is a good introduction to that conversation. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, uh, you know, I, I always get accused and I think a lot of black women scholars get accused of this of making everything about slavery and making everything about sexism. Oh, but it is. <laughs> right. It's like, I wouldn't be able to make these connections if they didn't exist. You know, if this man did not buy slave, I wouldn't be able to tell this narrative of the history of modern gynecology. Exactly. No, exactly. So it all goes, it all goes back. It all goes back. Right. So it is I what it is. And I think we just have to acknowledge that. Yeah, and the refusal to acknowledge that will get you nowhere. Like, it will not move us forward at all. Um, exactly. So, Carlos, thank you so much for joining me. I just, I mean, I think this has been such an insightful conversation. I know the dope black women in the UK are going to be surprised by a lot of what they hear. And um, hopefully inspired and motivated to, you know, to continue supporting or to start supporting um, you know, the efforts to reverse the damage that has been done by the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, the legislative perspectives, the information about midwifery. It's all been in incredibly insightful. And so thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm happy to talk about anything, anytime. And, you know, love just educating and inspiring people to hopefully keep up the fight. Thank you. It's it's a it can be very disheartening. I mean, for people who are advocates, I've been doing this. I was just telling someone today I've been doing kind of advocacy around women's rights for about 16 years. And there are moments when it gets hard. So it's nice to hear these conversations when I get to speak to someone who is so motivated and still, you know, just kind of doing the work and 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 just unbridled in their passion about protecting black women. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, let people know where they can find you, uh, what you have coming up. If you have anything coming up, you know, let us know. Well, I mean, the best way to find me, I tweet a lot um, and I'm at Carlos C on all platforms. I also have a podcast called Getting Common that's on Voice America Network. It airs at 11 a.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time. And it's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere that you podcast, you can find it. Um, and we've got, one, we've got a couple of episodes about reproductive rights. 
I do have one episode where I speak with a friend who's an OBGYN who explains, you know, the reason behind some of the disparities in, in reproductive and women's rights and in black women's reproductive health. So, you know, just find me on the podcast. I tweet a lot. I'm at Carla C. Um, you can find my book on Amazon. Uh, but, you know, I think the best way to find me, follow me on Twitter <laughs> and you will know everything that's going on in my life, probably more than you want to know. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Well, we'll put all of that in the caption for this episode. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Um, We will be back with you next week. Until then, stay blessed and unapologetically black.